And it was the, the residential substance abuse unit. And they had all these people around the table and then they put some, you know, they had spotlights and they put them on me. And so the rest of the room was like this. And so I was like, is this an intervention? Because <laughs> so, 30 years ago, <laughs> th that was kind of the model, you know, to get people involved with uh, substance uh -huh. abuse treatment is, you know, you'd have all these people confronting them on whatever, you know, how much damage their addiction had done. And yeah. So, so this reminds you of a substance abuse clinic. No, it was just that, you know, all of a sudden the lights came on and everybody else is kind of circled around and it's a little bit dark. And so, and that was, you know, as they sat down and the person, the uh, director had not come, uh, come yet. And so it was just a little bit awkward. And so, you know, they're just kind of looking at me and I'm looking at them. And so that was, I was like, all right, I might as well get this intervention started. <laughs> You know, and everybody, you know, laughed. And yeah. so we actually did start. And then the director came in and I got the job. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. You had a good result. Yeah. Um, are we live? Yeah. And cut button. Oh, Tom, if you don't mind, put your headphones on. Okay. Um, and I am going to, I got ear trumpets, so. I probably should take those out. Oh, because otherwise they hearing aids. Yeah, I'm due to get some of those soon too. What? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, since you're a hearing aid person, I also have severe uh, tinnitus or tinnitus. Okay. Depending on what continent you're on. Yeah. Um, you can adjust your headphone. Perfect. Tom, it's really nice to have you here. It's so good to be here. Thank you for yeah. having me, Tabas. Yeah, thanks for coming. We're, we're, of course, going to talk about your book with Crossway that's coming out soon. So this is an honor to talk to you before it's even released. Um, but I, I'd like to talk about other things, too, besides just hearing aids and <laughs> interventions. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> How long have you had hearing aids, by the way? About a year and a half. Mm. Uh, so yeah, they, they've actually been a game changer. Uh, my wife and daughters, uh, I can actually hear them. Yeah. And I actually found out that we have birds around our house, Yeah, you know, so in the summertime I can actually hear that they are around. So that's, uh, something I hadn't heard in years. Oh, wow. So those kind of higher pitch noises are, but also for your, your work, are you still doing clinical work as a psychologist? Yes. So that's kind of important. Very important. Yeah. Yeah. And how long have you been a clinical psychologist for? Um, Is it the proper terminology that I'm using? Uh, I guess. I, okay. You know, I, I have all of my colleagues insist on different titles. Uh -huh. I tell people I'm just a guy that sits in an office and talks to people. Okay. Or listens yeah. to people. Exactly. Yeah. So Which, thir about 30 years is, I guess, the years. right answer okay. for since uh, grad school. So after 30 years of experience, you're probably somewhat qualified to write the book that you've written for Crossway. Rem remind me of the title again, the a proper title. A Christian's Guide to Mental Illness, uh, Answers to 30 Commonly Asked Questions. Yeah, interesting. It's interesting how you set this up with this question format. So 
for those listening, each chapter is another probably typical question, as you say in the introduction, or some of the most common that you've come across. Right. Yeah. Um, just walk me through a couple of those so that we know what are some of the most common questions that are asked in your counseling sessions or that from a Christian perspective in particular, people want to know about mental illness? Probably one of the first ones that comes to mind uh, with a lot of my uh, Christian patients has to do with, if I have depression, does that mean that I'm in known sin? Am mm. I harboring sin? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it sinful to have anxiety? Is it sinful to have a bipolar disorder? Mm. And something yeah. that uh, people have really struggled, if uh, they have enough faith, that uh, that should have been a- enough uh, to cure their uh, ailment. And of course, uh, nothing could be further from the truth for mm. most of the people that I talk to. Yeah. Wow, interesting. So this brings to mind um, some people that I know back from, I'm from Los Angeles originally and have quite a few friends from my time in more of the, I would say, charismatic kind of even broaching into the Pentecostal realm. And um, what was what some of those people are still struggling with is this this thinking that, oh, this eye twitch that I have, or even some quite severe injury or chronic condition, I'm talking about uh, physical. Correct. In, or physiological maybe is the better term, is um, it's a lack of faith. And that's the reason why this has persisted and why I can't, um, why this hasn't been healed or gone away. But what you're saying is that this is also in the realm of mental illness or mental health, which is, we can get into that terminology maybe next question, but um, yeah, that's interesting. So people that may not consider themselves charismatic or or maybe they're, you know, confessionally reformed. This thinking has... And and that's the same idea, isn't it? It is. I don't have enough faith, that's why I'm OCD or that's why my son or... I am autistic or whatever the thing is. Correct. Really? So the, you've encountered this quite a bit then, it sounds like. Right. Uh, I have. There's like a, you don't have enough faith. That's why the problem is there. Correct. Or that there is some kind of sin that you've been harboring that you have not yet confessed. Mm. And so some uh, may you know, view this as a judgment of the Lord uh, on you know, their... Uh, unconfessed sin or not walking closely enough with the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Or demonic activity. Is that another one you encounter at I, times? I don't encounter that so much anymore, but certainly in the uh, early 90s uh, that uh, there was an awful lot of emphasis on the diagnosis of multiple personality mm-hmm. disorder. Mm-hmm. I think it's certainly in psychology, we go through waves or the diagnosis du jour. And that one was pretty popular throughout the 80s, throughout the 90s. And um, while I think I have seen uh, folks with demonic activity in their life, uh, it was certainly not as many as uh, had believed that that was so it was uh, going on. Yeah, yeah. You got, is that working okay for you? Yeah, it is. Oh, good.
How was that? That's great. Abby's like the best producer ever. Love it. <laughs> Thank you. So um, here's, a, here's a question I've been wanting to ask you since you and I talked a few months ago right. about coming in is this, um, this thought, and I think it's quite persistent in, in Christianity, especially in certain circles, is that there can be no synthesis or marriage between psychology and biblical Christianity. And as you probably know from experience, that has manifested itself in certain ways, such as the, I guess we call it the the biblical counseling movement, which I was exposed to in seminary, which was very much, what was that? The Jay Adams stuff, which is very much- Aesthetic counseling, I think. Aesthetic counseling, that's right, that's right. Which was essentially saying, again, I'm not putting any judgment right now, but I'm- this is what I was told and we were taught is the, the Bible is sufficient for everything in your life, including uh, psychotic or mental situations or illnesses, however we want to define them. So my question to you then, Tom, is how, how, how do psychology and Christianity work together from your experience of 30 years of doing this? Well, first of all, I am a Christian. I am a child of God. And so the Bible is the complete rule of faith and love uh, for God, for our neighbor. And that certainly doesn't preclude that we don't use other tools in whatever trade that we're in. Uh, my father, he all during his working years, uh, was a, an accountant. And uh, in the early years, before calculators, he had a great big adding machine. Uh, later years, he had a computer, and he, that was the tool of his trade. Uh, for the treatment of, uh, let's say, skin conditions, a dermatologist may have a Mohs procedure with this uh, uh, very expensive scientific equipment. In the world of psychology, uh, we have different techniques that we use to apply truth in a person's life and help them to overcome the ailment or the illness that uh, they may be struggling with. Mm. Mm. Okay. So psychology as a tool, Mm. not necessarily a philosophy. Yeah, so maybe it's hard for people to grasp the, the scientificness of psychology because there are no there are no machines or are there or or tools like a scalpel for example you can't open up someone's brain well you could but you, it's not like you can kind of go in there and reset some gears the way you could fix someone's ACL or or a heart valve um, and so there's there's a mystery there and maybe that's part of the problem. That may be some of it. Uh, I think certainly uh, psychology has been used for an awful lot of discrediting of uh, Christian faith. And uh, in the hands, I guess, any tool in the hands of somebody that wants to use it destructively, uh, it is very dangerous. Uh, Now, we do have medicines that can be very effective and I put it, give people the competitive edge to make the changes uh, that they need to. Uh, Much the same as if you would go to your primary care doctor uh, with some kind of infection, 
Uh, he may prescribe an uh, antibiotic. While that may not necessarily cure you, it certainly does give your immune system the competitive edge to make the changes and to fight off mm. uh, this uh, bug that has attached itself to you. Yeah, okay. So that means then that mental illness can be cured? It can be managed. Okay, okay. Uh, in some cases, uh, through some counseling, uh, alone, uh, people learn to overcome uh, the struggles that they have. In some cases, we may need a combination of counseling and medication. Um, and yeah, I guess depending on what the diagnosis is, uh, I guess it determines sometimes the prognosis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some people may have an acute case or a short-term case of anxiety. Some people may have more of a chronic uh, anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this gets to one of the questions that's asked in the book, which is about medicine. Um, as you're very well aware, there's, there's a lot of hype about medicine, um, its use, its abuse. What do we do now? There's proliferation of new drugs coming on the market all the time. And then there's kind of the, the big you know, evil monsters that are talked about like Ridlin or what have you, um, or even more, we, what would we call them kind of natural approaches, whether it's CBD or uh, medicinals, mm -hmm. like psychedelics and whatnot. So as a Christian psychologist, how do you incorporate the medicinal side in to your practice uh, with given that there can be such a negativity or on the other hand, such a, a push for these things to happen, whether it's from the pharma pharmacological or the, uh, let's say the, um, the, uh, med the natural medicinal. Right. Well, one of the things that I am very blessed to have in my life are some, uh, uh Christian, uh, brothers and sisters who have their MD and a couple of them have the physician assistant, uh, uh degree, uh, but that they're able to approach medicine from a biblical worldview. So certainly we do not want to change a person's personality. We don't want to impair their judgment. Uh, we do not want to, in any way, uh, jeopardize other uh, health matters in uh, prescribing or uh, administering medicine. But as I had said earlier, if we can use medicine to give someone the competitive edge to make changes, example uh, might be that uh, somebody is struggling with their game of basketball. And so if we can get them a really good pair of basketball shoes, it's going to give them the grip, it's going to give them the support that they need on the court to become a better basketball player. The shoes don't change the person. They don't make you a better basketball player, but it certainly does enable you to have uh, the foundation needed in order to become better. Mm. Okay, okay. Uh, has has there been much change over the last 30 years in how you've diagnosed people, especially uh, in this area of medicine? Has there been a lot of change? 
there is a shifting paradigm, uh, particularly the last uh, two editions of the DSM, that's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and it, uh, many of those diagnoses are much more uh, medicine-driven. Hmm. Uh, sadly, there's an awful lot of pharmaceutical um, people on the board of the APA, uh, American Psychological Association, and so many of those diagnoses are driven by what kind of medicine uh, would be necessitated. So there is, uh, I think, there's some wisdom that may come from that. Uh, so if a, a certain medi- uh, diagnosis, it may suggest what kind of class of medication may be helpful. Uh, however, uh, with, again, the growing uh, profit margin with a lot of these pharmaceutical drugs, uh, the push is to get people on newer and more expensive medications. Mm. And the hope is uh, to uh, get them uh, feeling better much quicker. Interesting. It's quicker. Okay. Going back to your basketball analogy and this idea of a quicker fix. You know, while you were talking about it, I was thinking, okay, if you bought me a better pair of basketball shoes, I mean, I played basketball when I was young, but I'm still not going to be a LeBron or a Jordan. That would take a lot of practice. Correct. And practice takes time. So what are your thoughts then about that balance between the the work that's required from the individual and I would say probably also from the professionals around that person but also the the um, the impersonal interventions like medicine or or other things too physical exercise or something that's really big right now too is like things like cold immersion, like the Wim Hof method and all these kinds of things. And, you know, there'll be some other things that come along or diet. Um, it's, it seems like it requires a lot more than just, it's more than just sitting and talking and listening to people. Yeah, absolutely. It is. So in regard to just to the medication, uh, I guess one of the mantras I've adopted is pills don't give skills. Hmm. And so, yes, there are a lot of skills that are needed in order to manage, um, I think, any illness. But as we think about a mental illness or a mental health diagnosis, uh, well, you mentioned cold immersion. Uh, one of the things that we can uh, help people manage a panic attack very effectively is to get them a sudden cold change in temperature. Mm. So, so you throw I, cold water on them. I have recommended <laughs> uh, people that uh, maybe at home and they're not knowing what to do, uh, if they are in a full-blown panic attack, to stand in a cold shower with all of their clothes on. Oh, wow. uh, within 30 to 120 seconds, the panic will be gone. Wow. Oh, and wow. They don't have to take massive amounts of uh, hydroxyzine. Okay. or a Xanax or Ativan, uh-huh. uh, which both of those last two medications can be very habit-forming. Mm. Um, and so, yes, they can uh, be able to, if it will, kind of reboot the hard drive. It's uh, kind of like the hard shutdown on your, on your computer and uh, giving it a reboot. 
You know, I've actually been doing cold water immersion the last few months since we moved here to Michigan. And um, I have to say it's, so me personally, I've struggled in the past with depression, um, some other things. And um, that cold water immersion is like, this isn't being blasphemous. It's like a resurrection. It, it's a game changer. It's incredible what happens. It's so hard to get in, um, especially because it's wintertime now. And so the one that we have is like this old, it's kind of an old unused uh, jacuzzi tub that I just fill it with water. And it's it's the air temperature. So what was it the other day? Like 47 degrees. And it's so hard to get in. But after three minutes in that thing, you, I get out and it's just, um, well, even during, something happens. It's I'd love to see, maybe you've seen studies on this, but there's that initial shock. And then there's the, you know, the breathing. And then suddenly this, you enter this really interesting place of mental clarity. Right. And, you know, I don't have this with me. You don't have your cell phone. I can't phone. have my cell phone. I, I wouldn't even want to be scrolling Twitter while I'm in there. And um, it, it's all about this. It's almost like it's all about surviving this moment. That's exactly right. It goes to this pure basic instinct of just survive, just get through it. And then when the timer goes off, I almost don't want to get out. Right. And then I do. And um, that... I've I've heard through others like uh, was it Andrew Huberman and who does a lot of kind of the more clinical look into this about raised dopamine levels and other things like that. So in a way, it is medicinal. It is. It's just in your own medicine, God given medicine. Correct. Interesting. So I would think as a Christian psychologist, is that something you and other Christian psychologists are quite keen about? Is what has God already given us besides scripture, but in just um, the other re revelation, natural revelation, the, the things that he's given us internally or that pool of cold water he's given us uh, outside waiting for us to die and rise again, again, as it were, Absol metaphorically. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. We look at all of the good gifts that God has blessed us with and determine how do we best use those. Hmm. And that would include other things too. I mentioned diet. But what about, and this, I'm going to use this as a segue to touch on some other things you talk about in the book. But, um, you know, I mentioned a few things, uh, medicine, diet, exercise, and, you know, these types of one of the things that I refer to is the three most uh, three most important pills, if you will, and I can put those in air quotes, yeah. uh, that you have to take before you would go to the pharmacy. And what we're talking about is uh, regular exercise, proper nutrition, good sleep habits. So those three. And would you add a fourth, which would be along the lines of community? Well, that's certainly all part of that, isn't okay. it? Because that was where my question was going to go, is what is the importance of the, the community that that person is within? And I would include their church, their immediate family. Amen. And then outside of that, of course, colleagues, friends. Right. 
and particularly like with exercise and nutrition, uh, those things are best uh, utilized or enjoyed in the social context. Mm. And I think certainly doing those things with others is probably the single most uh, important factor in determining consistency. So Mm -hmm. if every evening I'm sitting down with my family uh, for a meal, if uh, every six o'clock in the morning you and I are meeting at the corner and we're going to go for that uh, 5K run, uh, I'm not no, going to let you, <laughs> but there, I'm not going to let you down. Yeah. You're not right. going to let that me accountability down. That's, that's right. so significant. Or if we're meeting at the gym or whatever the yeah. case may be. Yeah. Yeah. No, for me, it's, uh, my wife and the dog keeping me accountable that, uh, uh, we need to do this. Yeah. Are you a runner? I am not a runner. I am a fast walker. That's I've heard that's just as good. It's much easier on the joints. Yeah. Yeah. Um, during my, during the last decade when I was in the UK studying, so I was doing studies and work and family and it was very intense. But the thing that I think kept me balanced, even mentally, I would say, and not just physically, was swimming almost every day. And I don't know what it was, but there was a period of two years where I wasn't doing that. I was so invested in my studies um, and excelling, however you define that, that I, I really became unbalanced and actually suffered significantly mentally. And it mm. wasn't until, because I was not exercising. Right. I was like, I don't have time. Mm-hmm. I don't have time for this. And what we find is that the people that don't have time for those healthy habits become more inefficient mm-hmm. with everything else mm-hmm. that they do in their mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Huh? Well, um, speaking further about, about community. So one of the things, and I know this from personal experience, not my own personal experience, but those in my circle, as it were, mm-hmm. is that when it emerges Um, or becomes very evident that someone is struggling with a mental illness of any sort, the the challenge is not just for that person to maintain relationships, but on the other side of it, for those involved in that person's life to stick around. Absolutely. And especially, this is where my knowledge comes quite um, intimate in this area, is... Um, I know people who are married to, well, their significant other or their spouse is, they have some serious mental health issues and there's, it's very tempting to think maybe I should just walk away, you know, Mm. but it's hard. You know, you talk to these guys or these girls and it's like, well, on the one hand, I want to leave. And I almost feel justified to leave because I didn't know this going in or, you know, this surfaced in the last five years or it's a post whatever event thing, you know, aren't, isn't it okay for me to get out, you know, on, but on the other hand, their thinking is, however, if I leave, that person is now alone. They don't have my support anymore. 
even though it might be a begrudging support because it's so dang hard. Absolutely. Right. Sometimes gut-wrenching hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, the stories that I have heard. It does put the in sickness and in health clause that uh, all of us that are married uh, pledged to our spouse. Yeah, it's not just like colds and cancer. It's not. And those those seem easy. They're not easy, but but those uh, those seem easy relative to the we challenges have, have of mental expe- illness. We have a pretty good expectation if someone has a cold, what the longevity and what the run is going to look like. Yeah. We can, in modern medicine, we can also have a pretty good prediction as to what that journey through cancer is also going to look like. So we can shape our expectations. Uh, But in many cases, mental illness is a wild card Mm. that uh, we may seem to be uh, gaining on. And then uh, for some unexplained reason, it takes a turn for the worse. Oh, interesting. So, and I think hmm. probably in you know my own life and with the many uh, folks I've seen through my counseling practice, it's the unpredictability in any area of life that makes us feel unstable or you know un- it makes us feel like we're about ready to come unhinged. Yeah. So, why isn't why isn't mental illness a sin if it if it causes someone to sin? It can exactly it can be an opportunity to sin. So much the same as any other illness, uh, it can present opportunity to dishonor God. So like when I have a cold, and I'm a man, and colds they kill me, I'm done. For like three days. My wife knows this. For some of us, it's it seems worse than childbirth. <laughs> I would never say that, Tom. You said it. Um, My but, wife has assured me that that is not the case. But I know that when I'm in that place, you know, I'm much more prone to uh, losing my temper, laziness, just being super grumpy and not being all all good. We can be very despondent. We can have yeah. a, a severe case of the grumpies, and certainly that is not God-honoring. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely perfect. Uh, yeah. Someone gets a chronic illness, and probably one of the first questions is, why me? Or that certain sense of resentment that sets in. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask for this. Well, of course not. Yeah. But with, with something like, let's say... Um, Let's, let's pick a disorder. Let's set up, how about you set up a scenario, set up a context for me, maybe without, of course, without naming names, but of a situation where there's some kind of a diagnosis. So we know that through the tools of clinical psychology, we've identified that, you know, spouse A has some kind of mental illness. Spouse B is somewhat normal <laughs> if there's such a thing in your sure understanding well more stable how how sure. uh, that may more be. stable at least at this picture in time indeed so for spouse a who is manifest let, we'll set it up for me like give me a situation where you have spouse a and spouse b spouse a has a has a major a depressive disorder okay that's good that's a good one and how 
let's let's look at it from a few different ways. So number one is how is that typically going to affect a marriage? Let's talk about that first. And then I'd love to hear how, as a Christian psychologist, do you deal with it? But in between that, there's there's a big question mark for me. When does it go, f- and this is going to lead to a much bigger question, which I think you know is coming, is when is the handoff from, you know, Pastor Bill, who's like, hey, Tom, I, I'm, out of my, I'm out of my lane, dude. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do here. Right? Right. I, I can't just throw Bible verses at people and pray for them. I can do that, but it's not fixing the problem. Right. Well, let's, uh, if I can just start maybe at the beginning of it, let's say. I threw a lot at you right there. Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, (laughs) Setting up the question. I I appreciate that. But uh, let's take, uh, I guess, a classic example of a a husband uh, that he is uh, becoming more and more despondent, uh, depressed. Let's say he's a, let's make it more colorful. Let's say he's just returned from duty overseas He's seen some pretty gnarly stuff. He's got. A, he's lost some buddies. He's had post-traumatic stress. He's in now addition. having a transition back into civilian life, and he's he's kind of not the same person that left. When now wife has to deal with this. He's a Christian. He's a Christian. So is she. They go to a great church, and he loves the Lord. Yeah. And absolutely, there's nothing about his testimony that would shadow uh, give shadows of doubt on that. Uh, but uh, you, you probably one of the, there's a, a book that has, was uh, written many years ago uh, about male depression, and I just love the title, and that is, I don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so probably yeah. that sums up an awful lot of when uh, men, uh, particularly in our Western culture, I suspect, uh, are becoming more uh, despondent, more depressed, uh, withdrawing, shutting down, is the typical response that I see. Mm. And that is also then, you know, the uh, reports that I get from, you know, the wife, from the family. Uh, he's physically present, but uh, he's emotionally absent. Uh, when there's an awful lot of activity going on, he tends to uh, absent himself or withdraw from those situations. He becomes more uh, irritable. Uh, maybe even having some uh, angry tempers uh, with uh, little kids mm. um, to the point where the kids are a bit afraid of, uh, of dad. Uh, wife is not sure what happened because this is not the guy who I married. Let's add the PTSD part. Uh, then, you know, you may be waking up uh, during the middle of the night uh, with flashbacks. Perhaps uh, he's re-experiencing all of the trauma. So not only is he becoming you know, more anxious about going to sleep, uh, because I'm not sure when I'm, uh, if you will, letting my guard down to sleep, what's going to be coming out mm-hmm. during my sleep. So he becomes more and more sleep-deprived. Uh, he becomes, uh, you know, the energy... Uh, becomes less, his focus for attention becomes less, and it becomes this vicious circle of ever-worsening anxiety and depression. Mm. Mm. Typically, yes, uh, 
most of the folks that are coming from that military background uh, can do an awful lot, and we might say, of self-shaming. Uh, they you know, have an awful lot of shoulds and oughts. Uh, I shouldn't be doing this. I ought to be something else. I ought to be able to handle this on my own. And again, one of those lies that uh, we can easily get sucked into, which again fuels that vicious cycle of ever-worsening depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. So getting a pastor involved, uh, pastors, uh, you know, they have their theology degree and they know their Bible and can do a great job in encouraging someone, being able to pray with them, uh, perhaps even uh, helping them with uh, some basic communication in the marriage, uh, perhaps putting them in touch with some other men in the congregation, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, you have that Vietnam vet that uh, uh, does well to be able to mentor somebody that has uh, come out of a Gulf War situation, someone that has, you know, successfully navigated through their own PTSD. And that may be helpful, all of those components, uh, but uh, one of the things I have a special place in my heart for a lot of pastors that sometimes feel uh, compelled to do too many things and put in too many hours uh, beyond their expertise mm. and uh, at sometimes at the expense of some of the other uh, major uh, aspects of their job. Think of uh, several pastors that I've dealt with that um, involved in a lot of counseling cases and their personal devotion time, their personal prayer time, their prayer time to intercede on a daily basis for their congregation, their sermon preparation, uh, their preparation for teaching religion classes at church takes a back seat, and uh, now the whole congregation is beginning to feel it. So probably for the pastor, knowing what their limits are, how, many, how often I can meet with someone, and then knowing when it's time to refer. Um, I think of a couple of pastors they, uh, that uh, immediately come to mind. That For most of them, it's somewhere between two and five visits, uh, sessions, pastoral visits. If they're not able to see some significant improvement within that amount of time. Uh, it's uh, perhaps uh, ready to refer the person to a higher level of care. So having, you know, pastors having uh, a date myself, a Rolodex um, uh, context uh, for uh, who can I, you know, bring on board to uh, help with this whether it be a family physician, whether it be a social worker or a psychologist, being able to refer and hand the, uh, the situation off to someone that can dedicate more time, and perhaps that is their expertise. Hmm. Wow. So I would, I would assume, though, that most most individuals, and maybe I shouldn't say especially men, but maybe maybe that's true, would would prefer just not to deal with it. 
and that, yeah, as we refer to Even if most- they get a diagnosis. I, I know a person who recently got a, a diagnosis for, well, multiple things, autism, if I can remember, OCD, anxiety dis- high anxiety disorder, and maybe a few other acronyms thrown in there. Um, all of those diagnoses generally do go hand in hand. Yeah, and but but the attitude is, well, what do I do now? You know, I feel powerless over all of this, and perhaps if I ignore it, it will go away. Or yeah, and or, well, I kind of knew this all along. Uh, that's just who I am. You know, so how do you how how do you counsel people, not in these specific areas of mental illness, but should should these people be finding help or is this just the way they are and they just need to get on with it? Well, we're always interested in, you know, what is the level of impairment of functioning? Okay. So, so that's, that's the criteria then? That's, that's probably, you know, one of the most common criteria. So going back to you know this example of this uh, young dad that has depression, perhaps PTSD, uh, if he's not functioning well in his job, uh, he's not functioning well in his marriage or in his home, uh, all of those are, if you will, warning signs that says we need to get some help. Mm. So the way I think about those are kind of like those red lights on the dashboard of our car that uh, alert us we have a problem. And if we don't deal with that particular problem, it's going to turn into a much bigger issue. Mm -hmm. One of the things that uh, I used to do when my kids were small was driving much older cars. And there's a couple times where I did ignore that red light on the dashboard uh, only a few days later to be uh, calling the tow truck. (laughs) I knew better. I didn't do better. And it, it cost me a breakdown. And uh, that's a, a lot of times what we're looking at with folks. If, you know, the situation is impairing functioning, things are not going well, uh, they don't generally get better on their own. So a breakdown can look like a nervous breakdown or that's suicide the, or... All of the above. Disillusion of a marriage all these things. All of those things. Loss of job. Yeah. Uh, I certainly have encountered all of those uh, situations. Mm. Mm. But uh, yeah, the old term was nervous breakdown. I still kind of like it. Um, but there is that sense that someone is under such great amount of pressure that it feels that they have just been broken, mm. broken in half. Though mm. so certainly uh, the... Um, young dad that is experiencing those things. He perhaps has a lot of regret that he's been screaming at his children, that he has uh, been uh, written up on his job, uh, that his wife uh, says, I don't even know you. Uh, many of them uh, will uh, contemplate uh, ending their life as, as a solution. Of course, uh, as we had talked about earlier, well, uh, having PTSD or having depression is not sinful in itself, but it would certainly be the opportunity to commit sin. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So again, yeah, th- when we ignore those uh, natural warning signs that God has uh, put in our, uh, just built into our physique, uh, those again, like the red light on the dashboard, I believe are uh, those things that we do well to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. Does everybody need counseling? I think, Aren't we all struggling with things at different times? I think that uh, certainly uh, my attention as you raise that question is uh, to Hebrews chapter 10 where the writer uh, exhorts us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Mm. And I, uh, as I re- continue to read that verse, it's not just for worship, but for exhorting each other, for mm. encouraging mm-hmm. each other. And mm-hmm. I think that's certainly... We do need each other, and you know God has placed us in community uh, to be his arms and feet for each other. Uh, we certainly do wash each other's feet, sometimes doing those unpleasant jobs, uh, ministering to other believers. Uh, and the, yes, I think certainly, you know, in a, a congregation, we have uh, a wide range of experience. So you may have a, a teenager or you may have a senior citizen. Um, and, uh, can the senior citizen benefit from the teenager? Absolutely. Can the teenager benefit from the senior citizen? Absolutely. Mm. Well, I mean, just, just having only met you a few times, but you seem like a very well put together gentleman. You have a vibrant, healthy family. And yet in the introduction of your book, you say counselors need counselors. <laughs> and I thought, what is he saying there? What an, what an admission. I appreciated that. Well, thank you. Uh, when David and I had uh, written the book, um, there was a little bit of negotiating back and forth. And what we had come up with is to make the book a little bit more personal rather mm-hmm. than academic. Mm. So throughout the book, uh, both David and I talk about some of our own experience uh, with discouragement, uh, with depression. So, uh, sorry, continue. I interrupted No, you. thank you. So uh, that uh, is very, you know, it's certainly uh, both of our experience has been to aid folks uh, that mm-hmm. are struggling. Um, but also both of us have needed aid for ourselves. Mm. So, mm. Um, so do counselors need counselors? I think we all do need, you know, those encouraging, supportive folks in our life. Yeah. Uh, certainly in general and depending on what's going on in our lives, uh, maybe much more uh, specific or much more focused uh, sort of help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know the um, the germination of the idea to write this book, um, and and from that, what you hope to affect in the church with it, because reading through it, it's um, it is very accessible, and even just the way you lay it out as here are thirty questions. Um, where did the idea come from and why did you decide not to go the more academic route and and essentially write a book for just every the everyday person sitting there in the pews 
Well, that, uh, I guess, was multifaceted, uh, but uh, in one of uh, the conferences that uh, David Murray had done, uh, a couple, uh, Norman and uh, Vicki, had come to him uh, with a book idea. Uh, Norman's uh, brother had uh, been diagnosed with schizophrenia, mm. and uh, upon his death, uh, Norman wanted to do something uh, to memorialize his brother as well as to help the body of Christ. And so he had, they, that couple had funded uh, research uh, through Lifeway in regard to uh, surveying pastors and uh, their equipness to handle mental illness, uh, mental illness in the church. And then there was this also proposal for a book. Uh, to be able to utilize some of that research. So uh, the book comp uh, it relies on some of that LifeWay research. Uh, it uh, relies on uh, David's uh, expertise as a pastor, also as a seminary professor. He taught some of the counseling courses at uh, Puritan Reform Seminary, which mm -hmm. I had uh, the privilege of uh, being a part of uh, some of those classes. Uh, and also my experience as a psychologist. We uh, wanted uh, a book that was going to be more of a reference guide, so something that uh, pastors and lay people uh, could uh, easily access. Uh, one of the things that uh, we are convinced, and that is when in the church, we have a mental illness situation. Usually people are in a bit of a, a scramble or even panic situation. And for them to sit down and read a 200-page book mm -hmm. uh, seemed um, not a very good solution. Mm -hmm. And so we made it such that uh, people can easily turn to the chapter that uh, best fits, you know, the question that they may have. Again, the hope is to draw them into the rest of the book as well. Um, but then again, something that can give uh, hope uh, for uh, the pastor, the uh, lay folks in church, uh, that uh, they don't, uh, sometimes we're tempted perhaps to throw up our hands uh, with situations that we're not understanding. Yeah. And so if we can put uh, some of these mental health and pastoring concepts uh, in a very reachable uh, format, so something that perhaps a ninth grader could read and understand, um, as well as, you know, a learned pastor or, you know, perhaps even a seminary professor being able to put this into the hands of seminarians to say, you're going to encounter these situations, mm -hmm. keep this close by, you know, the rest of your books on your shelf uh, because it's, it's going to be helpful in those times of crisis. Yeah, yeah. Well, you limited yourself to um, 30 questions, but I'm, I'm assuming there are many more. I think that there probably are a lot more specific questions. Okay, uh, so you took more of a general approach this first one. Yes, sir. And I say this first one because <laughs> I'm thinking there's probably room for many of these, especially if you start to drill down deep, for example, into medicine or specific mental illnesses. 
um, into interpersonal relationships and so forth? There are a few ideas that I have uh, thought of, and David and I have also talked about, so um, stay tuned. <laughs> You're not going to give it away right now. That's fine. Um, Crossway already knows. They've got the printing presses ready for you. <laughs> what, what's, what's been the effect of social media in your practice since its um, arrival and until present day? Well, that's, I guess, a bit of a tough question for me to answer. Uh, social media, I think certainly, uh, at least when it's come to my clinical practice, I've not seen uh, social media uh, as a very helpful uh, tool. Uh, there's an awful lot of folks that uh, want to compare themselves to the ideal that they mm -hmm. see out on uh, the social media platforms. Mm -hmm. I think probably for most uh, people that use social media, we don't present ourselves in our worst possible light or our common everyday situations, but uh, we're going to highlight some of those um, mountaintop experiences or mm -hmm. some of those uh, big achievements. And so uh, folks that may be already struggling with uh, a sense of discouragement uh, if they're only paying attention to social media, can easily be sucked into the idea that somehow my life is less than what I'm seeing or less than what other people uh, want us to see about their life. Yeah, there's been um, statistics released recently, I think it was, on the effect of Instagram on, on young girls and just how devastating it's been. And then I remember seeing something the other day where a group of women was asked, these were younger women, I think in their maybe maybe 20s, and um, they, they were asked, if you had to choose between a long-term partnership, like long-term boyfriend, or marriage, let's say, um, or Instagram, like if it was one or the other, and all of them said Instagram. No way. That was their preference. Wow. And they almost, all of them said it without hesitation. It was like, oh, easy. Like, I couldn't live without the gram, as they said it. Wow. That does not surprise me. Really? What do you think it is? What do you think it is about our human condition that makes us um, so malleable? that this technology comes along and completely revamps the way that we think. I think all of us are easily prone to addiction. Uh, that might all of be, us? Yes, hmm. absolutely. Now I say that uh, with a little bit of uh, caution. Um, God no, understands and how he made us and he addressed that in the commandments that mm -hmm. we are not to have any idols. So this goes back to worship. It does. Mm. It absolutely does. So certainly before um, Instagram or some of the social media, 
Uh, I think certainly there are probably many other things that would encapsulate or uh, captivate uh, someone's attention, some of their affections, and perhaps it wasn't quite so obvious, it wasn't quite so uh, easily observable, uh, wasn't quite so accessible as uh, this uh, electronic device that most of us are carrying around our person Mm. uh, all of the time. Mm. So when I think about addictions, uh, you know, it's this uh, thing that we have convinced ourselves that we cannot live without. Mm. Think of uh, a a patient uh, that I had just met with very recently, and uh, that was uh, the person's uh, comment, and it was a desperate comment. I can't live without this. I can't cope without this particular thing. Mm person does profess uh, to be a Christian, and, but this uh, thing, and again, I'll just uh, leave it to nebulous on purpose, um, has distracted from their personal walk with Jesus Christ, and they know it. Hmm. Sometimes we may... Um, use other words, and I guess this may have a lot to do with some of the, um, whether it's Christian uh, or secular psychology, if you will. Uh, We don't want to dress things up or soft-pedal them. Uh, With this particular person, I had to confront in saying uh, this may have started as some kind of compulsive behavior, uh, but uh, you have an idol life that's taking the place of God. Mm. This is sinful. Mm. Mm. And we need to deal with that. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with it? Because I know I've wished sometimes to take this and just throw it off a bridge. By the way, my daughter put a mermaid in a heart, so that's why those are on there. Oh, very nice. (laughs) No, don't say that. Don't say that. I had a a dog. That That was manly. Yes. And now I've got a mermaid in a heart. Anyway, I've wanted to throw this off a bridge many times because I've recognized that in myself of like, you know, you some, sometimes you just look up from whatever it is you're on and, and there's this uh, self-deception of, oh, I'm, I've, I've been on the, reading the Wall Street Journal opinion pages for 30 minutes because I need to be informed or... You know, uh, whatever the app is that I'm on, I'm, I'm doing that for my job or I'm doing that for this or that. And then, and we can certainly convince ourselves of a whole lot of things. Uh, previously, we may have uh, just watched uh, 30 or 40 or two hours worth of television. Mm-hmm. Uh, or we may have gotten lost in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Uh, mm. But uh, I think of, you had uh, talked about some of the social media, and I think of some of the uh, testimony that some of the social media uh, giants uh, had uh, testified before yeah. Congress. Yeah. And they recognize that this stuff, it does rewire your brain. Uh, it, there is something about this instant reward that uh, is very pleasurable. 
Mm. Uh, you had mentioned uh, certainly hits of dopamine mm -hmm. uh, that uh, people can get or just this rush of adrenaline. Mm -hmm. uh, that also can be very pleasurable, but uh, very addictive. Mm. And because it's coming at us so fast, we're not necessarily taking the time to understand or even to consider, is this helpful? Yeah, yeah. Now, probably for most of us, uh, if we went to an amusement park and we found a new roller coaster and we refused to get off and we were riding it for several hours, most people would kind of step back and go, that's addictive. Mm -hmm. Or you seem to have, you know, be completely encapsulated by this. It's taken control of your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But because phones are a part of our life or that we've been trained to have them as a part of our life and they become very socially acceptable, most of us don't pay attention until somebody calls attention to it. You've been on your phone for how many hours? And there's something about the phone that we do lose track of time and space and location or situation or social uh, surroundings and, um, again, be very addictive. Mm -hmm. So I think certainly one of the things that comes to mind is with any, uh, addictive sort of behavior, being honest with ourselves as to what is this really? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if I have someone that's uh, struggling with, uh, alcohol, um, consuming, uh, a half a fifth, uh, a night of, uh, hard liquor, uh, that isn't just having a social time with friends. Mm. This goes way beyond that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Much the same as I've been scrolling on my phone for endless hours and don't know where my kids are, have no idea that my wife has been trying to get my attention for how many hours and now has just completely given up. Mm. Oh, and by the way, I forgot all about my duties around the home and now I'm going to be in trouble because I have to stay up late, don't get to bed on time. It, it creates this domino effect of a whole lot of unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Well, we're straying away, I think, not that it's a bad thing, but I'm just sitting here thinking, well, this is a major issue and I'm sure you deal with it, but an addiction, we would, we could classify that as a mental illness? Um, sometimes okay. it can be. Uh, one of the terms that I use many times with folks that are dealing with a mental illness is it's self-medicating. Mm. Interesting. So, okay. uh, so there's something else that's trying to be dealt with yes. through the addiction? Many times. Mm. Uh, I don't have an exact percentage, but uh, you'll have to forgive me if I misquote. I don't mean to mislead in this interview, but I believe it's 60 or 70% of uh, people with a mental illness will be self-medicating in some sort of way. Okay. Uh, whether that's some kind of compulsive behavior, perhaps uh -huh. video games or uh -huh. social media, could be alcohol, could be marijuana, um, a lot of different things. Could it be positive things? Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, everything you just mentioned has is either slightly or very negative. Right. 
could it be someone who is they just run 30 miles a day you know and that's their medicine well 30 minutes um, uh, miles a day um I think certainly with many uh, things that we do, a little bit can be helpful, but a whole lot uh, becomes questionable. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if uh, you know we're going to our favorite uh, uh, burger joint, um, probably reasonably, we're middle-aged guys, and we're going to eat one hamburger, not four. Right. Right. Yeah. So what I, what I wanted to get at is that there are this, now this is me as, uh, as a person who hasn't had the education you've had in this area or the experience, but just thinking about it, it seems as though there are mental illnesses that people are born with. For example, my son is autistic and then there are others that are the result of external factors, perhaps abuse as a child um, or even as an adult, but something else brought about that right. illness. And, and also I would, I would say, do we classify something as like, for example, autism as an illness is, is cause illness in my head has connotations of, of a disease or something that's bad or negative where at least in the way that we've been trying to approach my son's autism of course you can correct me if i'm wrong is that well this is extremely challenging and debilitating for him in many ways socially and and what else whatever have else have you but um at the same time he has some incredible giftings yes. beyond his peers because of that autism so anyway back to the original point is there's the the things that God gave you, and there's the things that maybe bad people or bad situations gave you. Yes, that's correct. Although, as a, of course, as a so, reformed Christian, I would say God is sovereign over all of these things, and he's made you that person that you are. But do we address these differently, both from a biblical and, I'm not separating these, but biblical and psychological um, approach? Like, or are, or, or are we dealing with these things in the same manner? You are, I like the premise of that question. No, we are not dealing with them in the same manner. Uh, with, uh, for, let's pick on, uh, let's say, autism. Mm -hmm. uh, a person with autism, um, they, their brain processes information in a very different sort of way. Uh, and sometimes, you know, we uh, can come at it from a deficits point of view rather than a strengths point of view. Uh, you have uh, just noted that your son has tremendous gifts that perhaps other children, uh, similar age, do not possess. And so for your son, we want to capitalize on those assets that God has blessed him with. Mm -hmm. In much the same way as, uh, you know, we want to do that, uh, I suppose, with someone that, uh, with anyone, uh, any one of his peers. We want to look at uh, that with uh, mental illness, if somebody has a mental illness. 
business. We want to capitalize on their strengths. But mm -hmm. uh, back to your son, um, don't want to char characterize that as an illness. Mm -hmm. Although, even as as the father of an autistic boy, there's times where I would say. Oh my gosh, that is an illness. <laughs> <laughs> this is a trial, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. And maybe even more so for us who are involved with him versus him. Like he's aware of his autism because we've told him about it. Right. And now he he owns it. Like, yeah, I was born with autism, mm -hmm. you know? And like he acknowledges that it's God who had him born that way, right? Right. But... Um, well, and understanding that his identity is not this diagnosis mm, that mm -hmm. uh, he's been given. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't define who he is, but it does describe a little bit about how his brain is going to function, how he is yeah. going to process his thoughts, how he's going to process and experience his emotions, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. how you know he is able to interact with others, how he is able to... Uh, what kind of job, uh, you know, yeah. he's going to do. Yeah. So with autism, as we just talked about, you have, we have both positive and negative um, consequences on a daily basis that arise because of that, um, that disorder or that gifting, however we want to talk about it. But would that also be the case for other mental illnesses? For example, OCD. A person with OCD might actually be incredibly um, prolific or organized right. or clean or whatever it is. They, they may have a certain proclivity towards behavior that a normal person is not as concerned about getting done. Correct. <laughs> How do I say this as nice as possible? No, I think that's a perfectly illustrative of what, uh, you know, I was hinting at in a previous answer, and that is we look at uh, the characteristics, the traits that God has created, mm -hmm. that he's blessed a person with, and better, I think, uh, approach is understanding that all of those can be used for God's glory, and uh, certainly for our own enjoyment. Mm, mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I guess I have, so, uh, well, I have a father and several friends that are accountants. Mm -hmm. I kind of like that my, uh, my accountant definitely seems pretty obsessive. Mm -hmm. He does a very good job with all of the accounting. Mm -hmm. He's not somebody that's going to, if you will, uh, miss the details. Mm-mm. We no. want people like that. <laughs> yeah. We need people like that. Uh-huh. And so being able to, you know, certainly uh, as I think about uh, young people, you know, being able to understand what are their gifts. And certainly as I uh, think about our traits, our gifts, uh, they can be a blessing or they can be a cursing mm -hmm. depending on how we use those. Yeah, it seems as though mental illness needs addressing only because we are designed by God to live 
together with others in community. If you were an autistic person living out as a hermit, who cares? And it wouldn't matter to you either. That's just who you are. If you um, had extreme anxiety issues um, and you're living off by yourself on an island somewhere, who cares? That's your problem. Social anxiety really exists in a vacuum then, doesn't it? Yeah, and but, or maybe the, your social anxiety has to do with the animals that you're living in and, and around. But the point is, is that um, the, the reason that people like you are necessary is because these men, these illnesses, these situations are causing a disruption between that individual and other people. Is that a fair statement? And that's why it needs addressing. Well, if there... we if we were totally nuclear, not families or communal, but we were self sufficient and we lived alone. With some disorders, I think that's probably true. Okay. Uh, but let's just uh, pick on a major depressive disorder. Uh, okay. You know, a person may not be able to care for themselves, and uh, you know, certainly that would equate to probably, you know, death. Mm. You know, they can't mm. get out of bed. They can't uh, do the things necessary to uh, survive in, uh, on planet Earth. Mm. Uh, yeah, they're going to have an untimely death. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's a, there's a, there's a range. There, there is absolutely. So certainly this social aspect is, is a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because probably most of us are not going to choose to live as a hermit, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, on some mountain. Uh, right. Right. And the, yeah, I mean, we're living as a hermit and then we have all of those uh, pilgrims coming up to the top of the mountain to see the hermit. Mm-hmm. And that's disruptive of our uh, um, solitude. Yeah. Yeah, it can become a problem. Yeah. Now, there are different schools of thought within psychology, right? It's not absolutely homogenous uh, discipline. So um, I'd love to hear kind of your school of thinking, but also are you and David of the same school of thinking or, or, or different? And has that, has either situation, would you say led to the strength of your book project? Well, since both of our training and experience have been different, we certainly come from different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, I think certainly, uh, yeah, theoretically, you know, both of us uh, can appreciate uh, many different kind of approaches, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly we can pilfer from different uh, approaches in order to assist someone. Okay. So, uh, what uh, my training back at Wheaton College, uh, probably psychodynamic or neo-Freudian. Uh, so it talks, uh, and, and a lot of understanding about, uh, those, uh, connected relationships or, uh, you know, it's kind of the relational, uh, psychology. So that, that's how we would talk about neo-Freudian. That's well, that would be maybe one of the ways that we would look at it. Okay. But, uh, so that was my training. You can, uh, you can take us as deep as you want to into this whole thing if you want to. <laughs> Because neo-Freudian, that's a new term for me. Freud, Freud, I know. I mean, not intimately, mm-hmm. but um, 
he he gets a pretty bad rap. He had some pretty strange ideas. Yeah. Uh, and in Christian circles in particular, Freud can be looked at with extreme suspicion, if not hostility. So what is neo-Freudian then? Well, that they, uh, for instance, uh, you know, some of his follow, uh, followers, we might think of like his daughter, Anna Freud, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, Carl Jung, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that and they had some kind of new agey uh, uh, ideas uh, but they made some of his ideas uh, that were pretty underdeveloped, uh, brought them into a much more uh, understandable uh, way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, do I subscribe to some of the Freudian or the neo-Freudian? Absolutely not. Mm. But we can certainly learn from that approach in regard to how human beings uh, attach to one another and that attachment is necessary for uh, healthy development physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Uh, We can understand how that works in uh, marriage and family relationships. Uh, so, you know, kind of a, from a family systems, that's also kind of grown out of some of that neo-Freudian, uh, school of thought. So being able to understand how those interactions uh, can be either helpful or hurtful, uh, in a family or in a wider society. Mm. But, uh, yeah, probably what uh, we've done an awful lot more of, uh, David and I, and that would be more the cognitive behavioral uh, therapy. So understanding that uh, when things happen, most of us are going to have a thought or, you know, we're going to assign some sort of meaning uh, to that event. And as a result, where a feeling is going to be resulting and Usually that's when decisions for action uh, also uh, take place. And so, you know, we can kind of, if you will, do the backtrack as to, you know, how is a person's thinking? Does Mm -hmm. it make sense? Are they going in the right direction? Is is their thought processes or their belief structure uh, making sense? Of course, you know, the Bible being our chief rule of faith and uh uh, practice, uh, understanding of, uh, our, of human beings, understanding of God, uh, we can begin to have a lot more insight into uh, the transforming nature of Scripture, uh, not just in a person's uh, walk with Christ, but in their walk with their fellow human beings, mm. and relating to others, uh, also relating to themselves. Would you say that would you say that that's a, um, a common school of thought that Christian psychologists come from? Is that neo-Freudian, or does it just vary across the board? It varies a lot across the board. Okay. And would you say that that would maybe be, um, that would contribute to the strength of Christian psychology overall is the variety within the discipline? I would call, well, maybe the subdiscipline of Christian psychology. Right. Well, and I, I guess, you know, sometimes the Christian psychology uh, term, um, depending on who you use that with, can mm-hmm. sometimes be very helpful or sometimes a very off-putting term. So uh, one of the things I like to emphasize is, first of all, 
Christian. Mm. Second of all, my uh, job or profession is psychology. So I, I use the psychology tools that I'm most familiar with in order to help people uh, in their Christian walk as well as their uh, walk with their fellow human beings. Hmm. And of course, you know, there's some folks, I, I have my areas of expertise and then I have uh, a list of folks that have perhaps other expertise. So if I have someone that's coming into my practice that uh, after an evaluation, I'm determining, no, this is, uh, they would be better served by another person that I have in my list uh, that we're saying, yeah, we'll, we'll refer them to that individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, well, which tools do uh, each person have in their toolbox? I think that's kind of what we're, uh, myself as a professional, is always, I'm always looking at. Mm-hmm. So your, your book, how, how can it help people who don't have access to someone like you? So I'm thinking here of churches perhaps in more rural areas, um, pastors who are trying to serve a congregation that's maybe a bit smaller, um, people who are recognizing there's a need right. and they're looking for, well, let's not say call it Christian psychology, mm-hmm. but rather a psychologist who is a Christian and, yes. they, and they can't, they, there's nobody within their geographical area or whatever. How can your book help that individual Several ways. The first uh, way that I would hope that it would help is to empower folks to be able to use the tools that they already have. Mm. I think certainly, you know, with an awful lot of situations that I've been involved with, uh, people begin to doubt that they uh, can contribute anything towards someone that is struggling with a mental illness. And as you've pointed out, that social support network is essential. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless of whether they just stay within their local rural church or uh, whether they're getting some outside help, uh, we need a lot more support than just one psycho- uh, psychologist, Christian, uh, sitting in an office miles away. Mm. So the hope is to take away some of the mystery, some of the fear that people would have in uh, uh, springing into action. Second thing that I hope to accomplish, and that is to give people a sense of hope that uh, if there is a uh, mental illness that is emerging, uh, this does not have to be a life sentence and that healing is possible. And the third is just to get a sense of direction. Um, So hopefully that what can I handle and when is it time to refer? Uh, When is it time to get some other folks involved with uh, the process? So in that uh, rural setting, probably the family doctor is uh, the first contact for many people. And uh, the family doc is uh, generally the person that has uh, quite a, a wide range of contacts uh, you know, at his disposal. Uh, 
in whatever situation comes through his door. So he knows or she knows, who am I going to refer to for what particular ailment or condition? Mm. In regard to some of those uh, rural situations, uh, more and more uh, telepsychology or telepsychiatry uh, has become extremely popular. Um, now, the, I guess the online sessions is something that uh, some of us, myself included, were doing before the COVID pandemic, uh, but uh, during the COVID pandemic became almost 100% uh, <laughs> that uh, we would uh, see, be seeing each other on a screen. Uh, now that uh, the COVID restrictions uh, have been lifted, uh, for the most part, uh, I would say probably still about a third of my caseload is online only. Oh, wow. And so yeah. uh, some of my folks are in the Detroit area, some of them all the way up into the uh, upper peninsula of Michigan. Mm -hmm. I have um, several right now that are in the upper peninsula. Uh, so somebody that uh, would need, if they wanted to be in person, uh, would need to probably drive anywhere from 50 to 60 miles on rural roads each way uh, to get to Marquette, uh, Michigan, where there's a bigger hub of in-person services. Mm. Mm. So help is available. Yeah. And hope is also available. Yeah. Let's, we can, how are we doing on time? How are you doing on time? I have a, a conference that I need to get ready for that I'm going to be hosting in just a few hours. You're hosting the conference in a few hours? I am the MC. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we don't want to keep you from that. Is that here in it's Grand at, Rapids? Yes, it's at the Free Reform Church. It's okay. an office bearers conference. Okay. And, and you're MCing it? Yes. Oh, fantastic. What time is that at? It starts at uh, seven tonight, but uh, wife and I have yeah. uh, a lot of refreshments to get ready. And okay, okay, let me. Can I f ask you one more question to close we've, this? We've out? got a few more minutes. Okay, uh, okay. So that'll be. Don't fine. give me a few. I'll take another hour. We'll okay. Ten to fifteen. <laughs> How's that? Well, we can keep it even shorter if you want. I really, I want to. I want to capitalize on a word that you've kept mentioning throughout this entire discussion, which is hope. Yes. And it sounds to me as though that is the, that is the central thread of your book that would tie all of these 30 questions together is that there is hope. Yes. For absolutely. you. Yeah. In the midst of whatever this mental health or mental illness situation is, you know, capital H hope is there. Yes. Yeah. So, however, <laughs> I'm going to assume that you see people who are not Christians in your practice. I do see some. Yeah. So they are one step removed from that hope. They are. And how do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, you, you have this amazing toolkit, of course, from your studies at Wheaton, from 30 years of practice, and yet there's this one tool that can only be used on a regenerate 
person. Right. So perhaps this is a question that might help pastors and or other psychologists out there, but that seems like a very tough uh, situation. It is. uh, I will have to say that in some cases, I do feel like I have my hands tied with Mm. some of uh, the folks. Uh, One of the things I'm always very careful to do in the initial meeting or the initial uh, evaluation is to ask a person about their faith background, Mm. uh, their church affiliation. And it doesn't usually take people too very long, even though I have no religious artifacts in my office, uh, to figure out that, uh, yeah, I'm a conservative Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some that say, um, I don't think you're the guy for me, and Mm -hmm. I, I, I respect that. Uh, but then there's many that say, I understand that's your framework. And uh, so, that, you know, they'll certainly hear biblical references. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the hope is that uh, in the same way that perhaps a Christian family doctor uh, is not going to apologize for how they do medicine, right. how I do psychology, yeah. uh, that is going to enter in and Hope is that uh, whether um, yeah, they, if you will, turn to Christ through this mental health crisis that they're in, or perhaps I have just been able to plant some seeds in mm-hmm. the hope that uh, you know God, uh, His Holy Spirit, will uh, work regenerating uh, grace in their heart, perhaps at a later date. Mm-hmm. What about people who come in professing Christ and yet? it becomes apparent that they were maybe raised in the church and they're a nominal, or we would say unregenerate person who professes Christianity. Right. Would you say that those cases are, are harder sometimes than the, you know, the, the atheist who comes in, for example, they can be. Okay. Um, but, uh, I, the term that comes to my mind with everyone is gentle honesty. On your part, on my with part, with them. That's right. Hmm. Can you tease that out a bit more? <laughs> <laughs> well, for someone uh, that perhaps is does not have that personal walk, and I can you know talk with them very specifically in regard to um, you know at, at this point the faith uh, seems to be on the periphery of your life. Mm. Uh, that, uh, you know, a daily walk, a personal walk with Jesus Christ does not appear to be part of your life. Um, and well, that's going to, sorry to interrupt, but that's, that might in be, your experience, that's something that would actually inhibit significantly their progress right. in this, in their, with their mental illness. It can, yeah? yes, absolutely, mm. and many times does. The other thing that uh, I guess that I uh, use is um, just the questions that I pose to the person that I want them to wrestle with. Sometimes uh, we might say that I'm planting seeds of doubt in a person's mind. So, for instance, how they have been living, you know, or um, ask, you know, asking them to think about mm-hmm. how well is this working. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to, I'm not going to ask it that bluntly, but, you know, asking them to reflect on, you know, the values that uh, you've stated, 
versus how that's being worked out in everyday life experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the uh, again, we'll just go back to the example of this uh, young dad with PTSD and depression, um, you know, drawing some subtle attention towards um, that we are being, as a Christian husband and father, that we are to... Uh, emulate uh, Christ's love to the church by our actions and wondering, you know, uh, how does that work it out uh, for you when you notice that, uh, you know, you've had these um, blowouts with your wife or, yeah. you know, you've sequestered yourself uh, in the bedroom and haven't come out for hours. Mm. Mm. So being able to kind of play with, you know, some of that, uh, if you will, cognitive dissonance that uh, most definitely is going on in the person's life, but uh, shining a little bit more light on that and asking the person to pay attention to that. Yeah. Okay, final question. Well, it goes with the other final question I asked earlier about <laughs> about hope. <laughs> Indeed, hope is something that fascinates me, and it's something I I, I thought a lot about on during my s- studies in England. Just this, I was studying the Apostle Paul and um, this concept of or, well, thinking of what what was it for Paul? This this uh, eschatological, as we would say, hope that he had. Mm. And kind of fleshing that out. So anyway, it's it's a concept that always fascinates me, right? Especially as we, as the regenerate family of God, live by hope and through hope mm-hmm. and in hope. Um, so here's then all that to say. Here's the final question: Is for the for the believer who has one or multiple acronyms of mental illness that they're legitimately struggling with what um what is their hope in this life and of course we know well no actually i would say two things in this life but also in, upon christ's return and the reason i'm asking this is because it's coming from again from personal experiences i i do know an individual who has expressed many times actually something along these lines of um i wish that i could die or that christ would come back so that i don't have to deal with this anymore um and that and that the people in my life don't have to suffer with my situation Mm. so their hope is in death but there's there's it's it's there's a dark aspect to that Mm mm-hmm their hope is in either death or Christ's return. Yes, they, they anticipate his return as a Christian, as we all should as Christians. Well, we do as Christians. That, right. that comes natural to us as regenerate um, children of God. But for them, it has this whole other aspect to it of um, ending the suffering mm-hmm. for myself and for others. Um, preemptively, as it were. Right, right before my time. I wish it was now. It's that heavy for them. So what hope does that person have? Through th- saying, sorry, saying like through the tools that you and others are able to bring to the table. 
Tevis, as you give uh, that question, I think we have at least another hour, maybe more, <laughs> to talk about that. We'll come back. You're local. Uh, you know, I, I'll have I, you back. I think of several, you know, uh, passages in Second Corinthians where, you know, Paul does address that. Uh, you know, that he, you know, three times had been uh, requesting that the Lord would remove a thorn mm-hmm. in the flesh. Mm-hmm. And of course, the answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And uh, so certainly the hope that uh, immediately comes to mind, and that is that, uh, you know, we have a high priest that is that has been touched with all of the nature of our infirmities. Uh, And he is seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Mm. You know, Mm. so we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, making intercession for us. We have the Holy Spirit uh, making sense of those sighs and groans and presenting those to Jesus. So Mm -hmm. kind of that uh, twofold advocacy with the Father. And uh, certainly we understand that, uh, you know, all of the trials that are ordained by God uh, for our sanctification. So, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, yes, we do long that this, if you will, earthly tent were dissolved and uh, that we, you know, have that, if you will, homesickness. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And certainly the the patience for the journey that God has ordained to get us there. Mm. Amazing. So we're not doing this alone, and we're not just doing this in the office of our psychologist or psychiatrist. We're doing this in the by the strength and the promise of the Triune God. Amen. And His anticipated real return yeah incredible so we're not alone we are not alone when does your book come out uh it is i believe going to be end of august uh, that uh, the booksellers will have it and i don't remember if it's the end of august or the beginning of september Mm -hmm. so right around labor day uh it should be ready for purchase okay i do believe there's already an Amazon link uh, to the book. Yeah. Um, so I have not checked that out just yet. Where else can we or others find you? Online. No, don't give me your home address. Online uh, or otherwise. <laughs> well, that is a, uh, at this point, uh, you can probably find me at uh, pinerest.org, uh, the organization I work for. Okay. Uh, there's just a brief bio, uh, but, uh, this is, uh, David Murray, as well as my daughters have advised me that I need to have more of an online presence presence. So stay tuned for that. Good. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Tom. I, I'm just really grateful that we finally made this happen. And I hope that your message of hope really permeates the church in this particular context of mental illness. And let's have you back again soon. I really enjoyed this. Thank you very much for having me, Tabas. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>